This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Wardscott here in the Warthog Man Cave here waiting for the storm, really. Inside the Melton Law Studio, we have 50 years of experience with Melton Law Full Legal Service, the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators, and of course, protected by crime prevention at cpss.net. But we are, as I will talk about at the bottom of the hour, uh, waiting the arrival of the storm, which has been uh, on a lot of people's minds, understandably, and we'll get into it with you as we wait. Right now, we have power. We don't have the storm here at our location. But tomorrow may be another day. We'll talk about that. We have our guest, a regular guest. He comes in with us quite frequently from the American commitment of Phil Kirpin, who's en route um, in, I guess, D.C. traffic, which uh, I don't envy him for. But he's on the audio and we'll be talking with him as he travels. And I think your subject today, anyway, what I've been reading about, Phil, all over the place, it's hit the big press. And of course, you've covered it, is this Biden uh, loan write off of my own target here, sir? Yeah, it was, uh, we got some big news yesterday. The Congressional Budget Office did their first uh, scoring of this proposal. They say it's going to cost taxpayers $400 billion with a billion with a B. Um, and, you know, there are, about, there are about 100 million households in the United States. So $400 billion is, you know, uh, $4,000 a household. Uh, a lot of money. Uh, but you know, that's really just the tip of the iceberg because they only considered the ten to $20,000 write-off amount. Uh, they did not consider the changes to what's called income-driven repayment, uh, which is another part of the Biden plan where uh, no matter how much you borrow, Biden says you just have to pay 5% of your disposable income for 20 years and then taxpayers pick up the rest, uh, which to my mind is going to cost you know, even more than the uh, rest of the proposal. I think overall we're going to be somewhere north of a trillion dollars because what's going to happen is, especially in the graduate programs where there's no limit to how much you can borrow for student loans, the administrators are going to say, you know what, you know, with the exception of the very high income things like, you know, like medical school and law school, but any other graduate program, they're basically going to say, look, you know, we can raise your tuition times five or times 10 or to anything we want because you're not paying it. Taxpayers are going to pay it. You're going to pay the same 5% regardless. And so uh, there's going to be absolutely no uh, downward pressure at all on tuition. So for these graduate programs, they're going to go totally haywire with the entire cost falling on taxpayers. And I think that uh, when it's all said and done, this is going to potentially run into well north of a trillion dollars because they're also going to set the precedent that whenever there's a Democratic president, he forgives a bunch of student loans and taxpayers just pick up the cost. And so uh, I think this is an astonishingly bad policy. And, and worse than that, Ward, it really offends our entire constitutional system. You know, even let's use the lowball number from CBO yesterday. Uh, 
even if it's only $400 billion, how can the president of the United States spend $400 billion without approval from Congress, the branch that's supposed to have the power of the purse under our Constitution? It's really, uh, you know, if he can get away with that, the president could spend any amount of money on just about anything uh, without, uh, you know, bothering to get a law passed. And, uh, yeah, it's a legal brief, um, according to one article here conjured up by the bureaucracy of the president, who's acting actually like a king. Um, and, you know, we really de facto become that uh, royalty is the king who is the president who decrees with executive orders and on a whim what he needs to make sure he keeps his base happy, which is, of course, the liberal institutions of uh, education. And um, I don't know how we stop it. That's the big issue. I'd like to maybe fast forward with you on this. I know an American commitment and you're right there in D.C. close to all this. You, you try to conjure up some sort of way to deal with it. But, you know, what's it, What's how do we stop him? I mean, this is ridiculous. And it's really amounting to, you know, is it not a circuitous way of providing free education from cradle to grave? Is it not? Yeah, well, I think it, it functionally it functionally is that uh, at least at least for, you know, a lot of these graduate programs, which are a lifestyle thing for a lot of people on the left. Um, you know, the entire cost is ultimately going to be borne by taxpayers because they're never going to have an income that's sufficient to actually have to make a payment. And then the whole loan gets discharged. So it really is kind of a backdoor to just having taxpayers pay full freight for a lot of these college programs, which, uh, you know, are sort of the beating heart of leftism. And so it is a lot of the uh, sort of the uh, a lot of the motivation, I think, is to provide political support to their core base, not just in that way, but also, of course, you know, a lot of your sort of middle to upper middle income people who have college degrees, uh, they could pay their own debts, but if Biden's going to have the, you know, have everyone else pay it for them, well, maybe they'll be grateful politically and they'll uh, be more eager to vote. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, there, there are basically two ways this could potentially be stopped. One of them would be to elect a Republican Congress that, uh, you know, provokes a confrontation and actually is willing to go to the mat uh, with the president over this and try to stop them because that involves shutting down the government and so on and so forth. Uh, the other way would be through litigation to figure out a way to get it to the Supreme Court and have them strike it down. You know, one of the things that's most remarkable about the legal memo that the Biden administration put out on this is, you know, they're, they're basically twisting this post 9-11 law called the HEROES Act, which was supposed to be, you know, if there's a national emergency, a war or a terrorist attack, something like that, the uh, Secretary of Education could say, you know what, I'm not going to make these guys pay their student loans while they're off fighting or whatever. And uh, what Biden said is, ha, well, COVID is a national emergency and uh, they we're still in a COVID emergency. And so I'm just going to discharge all the loans for everyone on the basis of this 2003 law that had nothing to do with that. And, you know, they, he did not in any way in this legal memo address what the Supreme Court just said in West Virginia versus EPA when they said that on a question of major significance, uh, it's not good enough to find some old law and repurpose it. You've got to have clear direction from Congress saying they want you to do it. And obviously, they don't have that in this instance. Uh, they've tried to get things like this through Congress and been rejected on multiple occasions. And so I think if this gets to the Supreme Court, it'll certainly be struck down. But they, they've, they're trying to prevent it from getting the Supreme Court. And so the, their strategy seems to be to do this in a way where they don't think anyone who is willing to sue them will actually have legal standing and the uh, case will never get decided. So, for instance, uh, they fired all the debt collectors on federal student loans last year. 
There are no debt collectors. Why? Because the debt collectors probably would have sued them if they canceled all the debt. And so there are no debt collectors anymore. Uh, there are servicers, uh, companies that service federal loans, who would pretty clearly be uh, negatively affected, would have a very good argument for standing. But to try to prevent them from suing, they set all the servicing contracts to expire at the end of 2023. And so all of those companies know it's going to be the same Biden administration with the same education department that decides on the next round of contracts. And if that's their bread and butter, I think that they're going to be pretty hesitant to bring a lawsuit. And uh, so, you know, suits will be filed. It's not clear if any of them will have a good argument for standing that will survive in court because courts have not historically liked taxpayer standing as an argument. They haven't really liked legislator standing as an argument. I think the best chance we have of the legal route being successful is that two of the seven federal servicing companies are actually government agencies. Uh, They're the state lending authorities of Oklahoma and Missouri. So what I'm hoping is that the governors of those states will uh, direct the lending agencies to sue uh, or to sign on to lawsuits in their capacity as servicers, and that would really bolster the claim to standing. But even that uh, you know, the standing claim would rest on a government contract, whether that would fly. It's not, it's not airtight, although there's some pretty good legal arguments that it, that it would fly. And so the whole challenge, the whole game on the litigation side is going to be proving standing. I think that if a plaintiff, uh, can prove standing, it's a slam dunk that it'll get struck down in court, but uh, it's not clear that, uh, there's going to be a lawsuit that'll survive standing. So those are basically your two ways. You either need to elect a Republican Congress that's willing to really provoke a fight on this issue and uh, take it to the mat, even with the media and everything against them, or you got to win in litigation and, uh, you know, failing one of those things. And the other challenge we've got, Ward, is, you know, they're trying to do this right now before anyone can stop them. So, you know, you know it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the bottle if everyone's loan balance has been reduced it's going to be pretty hard to find a court willing to, uh, you know, put put the balances back on. And so it's a little bit of a race against the clock aspect to this as well. But uh, those are the two ways I see to stop it. And, you know, even if you can't completely stop it because some of the toothpaste is out of the tube, we've really got to do everything we can uh, to fight back against this so it doesn't become the new precedent. And anytime there's a Democrat in, they just transfer, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of student loans onto taxpayers, which is, you know, what this plan does. Oh, and Phil Kerpin, American Commitment. Uh, Phil, I got it. If you're talking about standing, yeah, I, this might be a, a reach. I'm just sort of poking around here in this issue. Um, what about the student who didn't get his loans forgiven? He's still got to pay them back. And he's got to, you know, aren't those characters out there somewhere who could say, hey, what's the deal here? You know, is this a, it'd be wonderful if it could be a minority um, and then you could really play the race card. I don't know. Are, is it possible? Huh? I think we will certainly see lawsuits like that from people who, you know, maybe people who paid their loans and now they're outraged that other people don't have to uh, or, or even, uh, you know, potentially from some universities that have gone to extraordinary lengths to keep tuitions down uh, and, you know, they can, their competitiveness is undermined by uh, you know, other places being able to get their tuition dumped on taxpayers. I do think we'll see those types of lawsuits, but courts historically have uh, rejected that kind of claim to standing as uh, too, too tenuous and not a concrete enough injury. So, you know, uh, l- let me put it this way. I think we will definitely see it attempted, 
but the chances of success, unfortunately, are, are probably pretty low. Well, this is, um, has even tentacles reaching farther than just this immediate payoff because, as we know, these uh, institutions, quote-unquote, of higher learning, even the K-12, through are so um, dependent upon federal money in some form or another. And, you know, they're not going to beef because they're going to bite the hand that feeds them if they do, correct? Well, it's good for that. It's good for them because, you know, That's if right. you're a university, if you're a university, yeah. more government picks up the cost, the more you can raise tuitions. And so this will, this, this plan will significantly raise tuitions. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And so I think the administrators are, are you know, licking their lips. <laughs> the idea that, the idea that, you know, when you publish your obscene tuition amount, you can tell people, don't worry, you're never going to have to pay it. Take out a loan and sooner or later it'll be discharged. Uh, I think that's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a gift to these universities. So it basically allows them to have no accountability at all. You know, they're not going to pay for the bad loans. The taxpayers are, so they can just, you know, this is, this is licensed to them to just increase tuitions even more. And you used the actually bad, you know, a lot of them probably weren't bad. They were just being paid in a trickle form, but they were being paid. What it looks like to me is a complete blanket write off. Well, yeah. bad. That's a really that's a really good point because I think most people uh, most people would agree that we should reform student loans in some form or fashion because they have become a crippling problem for some people. And uh, frankly, a lot of people were victims of, in some cases, scam for profit schools. In some cases, uh, you know, degree programs at regular universities that didn't prepare them for any kind of uh, you know actual job. And, you know, they have these enormous debt loads. And frankly, a lot of people in that situation, the Biden plan doesn't even really help them very much because, you know, if you've got fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 of loans and no prospect for a job, uh, you know, $10,000 of debt forgiveness isn't necessarily going to change your situation very much. On the other hand, you've got tons of people who have jobs, you know, who might be making, you know, this goes up to $250,000 of income for a couple. You, people who could be making very good incomes and totally capable of paying their loans. And they're so, hey, you don't have to, because politically, you know, we're going to dump it on taxpayers. And so it's extremely poorly targeted. And, you know, what I think would make a lot more sense if we want to do something to help the people who are really in trouble is to change the bankruptcy laws, because right now it's almost impossible. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult to get student loans discharged in bankruptcy. We ought to go back to something like the old system where student loans can be discharged in bankruptcy. Uh, you know, that's not a blanket giveaway. Obviously, if someone has a bankruptcy, that's going to affect their credit for a long time, or they can work to get out of that hole and so forth. Uh, but it's going to get them, it's going to wipe their slate clean. It's not going to just limit it uh, for the people who are really in trouble and need it. And But what I would do is I would do a version of bankruptcy that puts a portion of the discharge loan on the university and make them responsible so that they've got a real incentive in making sure that their graduates are going to be, you know, functional economically so those loans don't fall back on them. Well, you know, here locally at the University of Florida, for example, they have just been beside themselves trying to do whatever they can do to get quote unquote ranked in the top five in the nation. And um, I haven't studied this, but at one point I was sort of pretty close to the data what percentage of out-of-state students it takes to make a top five or what percentage of well-supported in-state student it makes to get the uh, accepted on the entry. Because, you know, these entrance standards here 
require uh, a high standard of living from a family generally to get a student up to snuff. I mean, there's not that many quote unquote uh, geniuses walking around that don't need somebody to help them, right, Phil? You know, you you get them the good teachers, you get them the good prep schools or whatever. And this just, you know, this is practically unfair to them too. Uh, you know, the people, the families who work hard and save, who do put their kids into school without debt and, and have targeted getting them into an institution that reciprocates with quote unquote a ranking, you know, which I've always thought was hocus pocus, so to speak. Um, don't you think that's also unfair? And I guess there's no way for the, De what I'm driving at, Phil, is a decent law-abiding family doesn't have standing in this. <laughs> I'm not sure where he is. I've lost him. And I hate to have wasted that whole conversation, Phil. He, uh, he, he may be transitioning into a visual here. Uh, anyway, we're talking with Phil Kerper, uh, who is en route. He got jammed in traffic in D.C., was to be on the air with us visually, but he's been on the air with us in terms of audio. And uh, he may be back, he may not be back because he's, uh, you know, we got him till 9.30, then he's got a conference call. But in case you're just checking in, we're talking about um, the imperial president, really. He's acting as if he were royalty. And he does this without uh, the okay of Congress, so to speak, people's representatives. And he just writes off this enormous student debt, which is probably north of uh, right now, according to the calculations that have come out of the uh, the, the, uh, the government uh, auditing itself, 570 billion. And as Phil was saying, perhaps even before it's over, it'll be over uh, a trillion. And, you know, that's about four thousand dollars for every family. And my point, what I was trying to make before we lost Phil was that is $4,000 on addition, in addition to whatever money I spent getting my child ready to enter a quote unquote rigorous top five place with big entrance requirements, which, you know, I had to spend some money to get them to good schools, to get them good help. Uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, so I've got 4,000 on top of whatever I spent personally. So, um, and that doesn't seem to be in the eyes of the court anyway, at least the way Phil was explaining it, a, a legal way to approach this because um, uh, of standing, a thing called standing. In other words, show me how you're affected by my decision. And, you know, the courts are, you know, they have precedent. They rely on this stuff so much that, that um, you know, every once in a while they will say the precedent. Every once in a while they'll say the precedent really wasn't a very good precedent. And that is what has caused the abortion issue to be reexamined, as it should have been legally. And it should not have been used as precedent to begin with. And um, basically, the court said, well, we'll put it back out to the public and let the states take care of it. And if you want to bring it back as a, as a law of the land, bring it back through Congress. But just don't decree it. And here we have a situation where uh, we're, we're, by, we're bypassing Congress. Um, they're going they're you know, Biden's doing it by the seat of his pants, so to speak, and going on uh, with his own agenda. And uh, that has not been uh, a good for us. We're going to pick that tab up. You know, this, this, there's a Can you guys about, hear me now? Yes, sir. I was just reasoning. And that's what you had done. Phil, here's my question I was going into as you uh, 
I, I heard the whole thing, but you couldn't hear me, so I don't know what happened there. Okay, well, what I was saying, Phil, I'm a family, and I've been spending money to get my kids into the school. So whatever money I spent, on top of the four grand I've got to spend for your kids, so to speak, who just got his debt wiped free, where's my standing? Yeah, it's uh, I. I wish you. I wish the courts would recognize that kind of claim. They historically have not. Uh, but, you, you know, I think that the place to prosecute that case is in the court of public opinion. And I think that, you know, as much as the president is doing this because he thinks it's a huge political winner to, you know, transfer debt from his base to taxpayers at large, he thinks that's going to turn him out to vote in this election and be good for Democrats. I think we've got to make the opposite case for this election and say, look, uh, you know, the the way to fight back against what the president's doing uh, for most people is to make sure the Republicans win Congress and can stand up to him and uh, that there's a political cost associated with doing this so that there isn't an incentive to just do it over and over again in the future. And so uh, the courts have not been favorable to that argument, uh, but I do think it's a really important one to make because the manifest unfairness of people who did pay their own way or pay their kids way through or, you know, sought a profession that didn't require higher education now being forced to pay again. And by the way, you know, it's not going to be most likely through higher taxes because that's not how the government finances itself for the most part these days. It's going to be through inflation. Uh, they're going to print the money essentially. Uh, there you to go. Make up for the yeah. hole uh, that's punched in the federal budget of those loans no longer being paid back. And so, you know, there's not going to be any way to avoid paying. They're going to pay for it in higher prices of everything which is how they've been financing all the government spending for the last couple of years. Well, you know, you make another good point. We're only talking about the abstract, so to speak, education. We're not talking about the hands-on trades, things like that. They're not even in the equation of forgiveness, are they? Uh, you know, I think they can qualify, like if you did a community college program or you know, a vocational school, something that's got a accreditation. I do think, you you know, you can get the, you can get loan forgiveness for that, but, you know, Things like apprenticeships, other types of training, I, I don't think you necessarily can. But, you know, it, it's really, you know, the the debt burden of people in the trades is typically much less uh, than the people who go to universities, of course. And, you know, the as I said before, you know, the, the biggest benefit of this program is going to be to graduate programs where they're essentially going to never pay their loans no matter how much it is. You know, the ten and $20,000 uh, has got a lot of attention, a lot of headlines, but this idea that you only have to pay 5% of your disposable income for 20 years and then your entire loan balance is gone, uh, that's going to be, you know, a, an unlimited subsidy to these, you know, left-wing lifestyle departments, you know, the sociology and, you know, the critical theory and gender studies and all this kind of stuff. They're going to be able to literally charge any tuition they want and pretty much the whole thing's going to fall on taxpayers ultimately. Yeah, yeah. You know, unfortunately, uh, we have the, quote, soft courses that, you know, people fill up and get degrees with. And it kind of amazes me that uh, we continue to proliferate them. We don't really put any limit on them because there's this move in the education world to dumb down excellence, if you will, to, to spread out. You know, you want to follow me? It's, we don't recognize meritocracy. We don't recognize the hard work. We don't recognize the payback. There's a big article about it. I think I covered or I'm going to cover it. Where's the work ethic gone? You know, this also undermines the work ethic, it seems to me. 
Yeah, no question. I mean, that's why I think the that's why I think the real way to the the right way to address this is to say, yeah, we're going to allow you to discharge loans in bankruptcy if you're destitute, and you know, not right away. You have to have a time limit, like seven or ten years or something, between college and when you would allow discharge in bankruptcy, so people don't just you know do a bankruptcy right away to wipe the slate clean and then build their life from there. But I mean, I think that if we had a a system where we say, look, you know, there is, you you can if you're in a destitute situation, you can eventually. Get a bankruptcy discharge, but uh, the university that you borrowed that money to attend is going to be responsible for some portion of the discharge loans. You know, and we, you could debate what that's going to be. Uh, I think if we had a system like that, we would completely change that incentive board because now they've got skin in the game. They're not just going to sell useless degrees, or else uh, they're going to end up getting hammered and paying for it ultimately. And and uh, you know, I think unless we do something to correct the incentives and to you know we're only going to make it worse. You know, you're not helping people. You're not helping people. If you say taxpayers are going to pay your loan uh, and that's it, you're not helping them because now you're, now you just give university even more of an incentive to sell more useless degrees to more people. Cause you can tell them you're never going to have to pay for it. Well, Phil Kirpin, who has now transferred himself to an image as he was only an audio a little bit ago, driving in the well, traffic of new of DC, I, I guess. So, you know, it's uh, American Commitment uh, is a think tank. And for those of you who are listening to Phil and I talk about these things, that investigates a lot of uh, issues dear and to us, uh, really from a fiscal responsible point of view. Wouldn't you say that's basically the criterion by which you examine is uh, yeah. financial? Yeah, fiscal, economic, regulatory, basically the, uh, right. the, the dollars and cents issues. And what we try to do is kind of jump into whatever the biggest thing happening is at any given point in time where we think that a little bit more citizen education and engagement might make a difference and uh, tip the outcome in a more free market direction. AmericanCommitment.org. Is that where yep, people Yep, that's the website. That's the website. Now, once upon a time when Trump was in the office, I think you could actually go in there once in a while. Is that true? And get his ear? Uh, I, I, I met the president just one time. Uh, in the Oval Office, but I uh, had meetings with staff and so and you know uh, administration officials from time to time. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I had had a little bit, and certainly I had more influence then than I have now. Uh, well, that's, that's my point. Sure. I, I'm assuming now you have less. By the way, if you move just a little bit to your left, you got the sunshine. There you go. Oh, you got the sunshine coming the in shade. behind you. The sun has risen. Yeah, you obviously don't have the storm coming your way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's much better. You were getting, I was getting a little light in the eye there. Yeah, I suspect your persona, non grata, so to speak, comparatively, uh, as a conservative uh, representative of the uh, examination of the issues in this particular White House. Where is he listening? Where is he getting his information from? If you have any idea, is there a, is there a corollary to you that is on the other end of the continuum? Uh, honestly, I think that this administration gets almost all of their feedback from Twitter, which is a very bad thing. Uh, it's kind really? of ironic because Trump was on Twitter all the time sending tweets, but he didn't read the other people's tweets. Uh, this administration seems, you know, whenever there's some new fake scandal or people going crazy with some gender thing or whatever's happening, they jump right into it. They do whatever sort of all of the reporters are saying to each other on Twitter. That seems to be the echo chamber that drives a lot of what they're doing, which, uh, you know, something like 20 percent, 15 or 20 percent of the country are on there. So it's extremely non-representative. 
but I think that's the, the sort of the, uh, the influencer class that drives a lot of what they're doing. And remember that the, you know, a lot of the liberal groups, uh, you know, are still like bunkered up in their homes. Okay. They're, they're still not operating in a normal fashion because they have sort of permanent Corona mania. And so I don't know that there's a lot of the normal face-to-face meetings with interest groups and so forth that you would typically see in administration, in administration, even now. And, you know, Congress, on Friday, Congress extended proxy voting yet again. They extended it through the election. And Nancy Pelosi put out a thing saying, you know, we need to have, you know, we need to have two more months of proxy voting because of a, quote, novel coronavirus. I'm like, is this novelty ever going to wear off? You know, novel. Uh, yeah, I think three years later, it's not novel anymore, but, uh, you know, they've got, uh, they've got a lot of that going on. So I think the, um, I think that things are still not really functioning, functioning normally on the Democratic side, which might be why they're still so reactive, or I would say overreactive, uh, to kind of the online left. And, you know, I think that's why we saw that insane, uh, you know, in, blood blood red sermon in philadelphia is you know they're sort of looking at these means and these kind of these crazy left-wing things and they think that's like where the country is which obviously it's not well it has certainly got to it's troublesome i you know i have ted yoho on tomorrow um and it's been really interesting talking with him because he's frustrated he says that a lot of the the stalemate is in those darn committees where you just can't get it out of the committee. And until we change the balance of those committees by getting more Republicans, but then there's a joker in the deck, there's the rhinos in there that I don't, I don't, I think the Republicans have far more turncoats, if you will, than the Democrats do. The Democrats, I'm learning in these committees, they don't, they stick together. I mean, there was a request I've learned from Kat Kamek trying to get out of the Homeland Security data on the immigration at a committee level, it was just shut down by the Democrats on the committee, all lock, stock together, you know? Yeah, the committees are pretty dysfunctional. Uh, they've been much less productive in recent years than they have been historically because almost all the legislating comes out of the, uh, the Speaker's office and the Leader's office on the Senate side. And Democrats have been pretty good about voting pretty much lockstep for leadership priorities, and they've not exercised uh, a lot of uh, you know, they, their committees haven't done, you know, the main job they're supposed to in terms of oversight, in terms of developing subject matter expertise and building legislation kind of from the ground up. Most of the stuff has come down uh, from the top. And to your point, um, you know, basic information requests, basic functioning oversight stuff, um, you know, when Republicans make extremely sensible, reasonable requests, they typically have been stymied and Democrats have been pretty united uh, on almost everything. Uh, they, they vote in a party line fashion. You know, even I remember, you know, the, uh, they had all these so-called moderate Democrats uh, that said they weren't going to vote for, you know, a, a, a budget reconciliation, build back better inflation reduction act, whatever it ended up being called, unless they got their uh, state and local tax deduction back, which, you know, means more, the rest of us subsidizing New York and New Jersey and so forth. So I'm glad they failed, but, but they, they must have said that about a million times, Ward. And then they all voted for the bill without it anyway. So when it comes down to it, they, they say things and so forth, but Democrats have been very good at the end of the day about having party discipline and voting in a lockstep fashion. And, um, you know, that's not who Republicans are. Republicans don't operate that way because they're individualists. And, you know, when they, they, 
when they disagree with their leadership on something, they're usually going to vote their disagreement, uh, not their party. And so, you know, what that means is to really have a functioning governing majority in the House, uh, in particular among Republicans, because the Senate is, you know, there's less party line stuff in the Senate typically anyway, although Democrats have been you know, extremely disciplined party line with a 50-50 Senate to get so many things through. But uh, really, to have a functioning majority on the Republican side, you need to have a pretty big majority. Because unlike the Democrats, we have one or two or three people who vote. No, you're often with a, in a Republican House going to have, you know, 15 or 20 or 30. And by the way, the 15 or 20 or 30 are often going to be our favorites because leadership usually is not nearly as aggressive as they should be on the things we care about. Well, we got a whole other topic on that, this whole a mansion deal uh, with this uh, uh, reduction. Oh, my golly, man. Is that yeah, he totally he was he was the total totally betrayed everything he had said for months and months and months. And he did it all because he wants to get this one natural gas pipeline approved in West Virginia. And uh I don't think he's gonna get it. I think I don't think they're gonna pass his bill after all of that. So I guess it serves him right. I, I've been reading that too. Well, thanks for coming by. I know you got another call coming up, and it's always great to hear from you. All right, my pleasure. Next time we'll try to schedule when I have the full hour. I apologize uh, <laughs> that I can't today. Okay, Phil. Thank you all very right, much. Have a good one. And you too, Phil Kirpin from American Commitment here with us this first half hour, partly on audio and then at the end here, video and audio, uh, talking about a boondoggle, if you've ever seen one, and that is the imperial decree by uh, King Joe Biden that uh, he'll just wipe out the debt of his uh, people who uh, will therefore be loyal to him and poll. One has to think that's the motivation. It makes no financial sense at all. And uh, it's done without congressional participation, which is unconstitutional. But, you know, the Democrats don't really care about the Constitution. And, yeah, I mean, it's an oversimplified comment, what I'm making. But uh, they really think it needs to be revised. It's a breathing document. Uh, they can't tell you why the cat stepped into the pit of the empty flower pot. Believe me, I've been in classrooms with these people. They do anything but analyze the actual words on paper. So... And it's, that's just the way they're set up. They, they can't seem to deal with the actual language. So they read, quote unquote, into the language. Uh, we'll take a break right now, come back and uh, on the weather, talk about this storm, which is uh, bearing down on Florida. And uh, we'll have a conversation with us about the latest update we have and uh, be right back on the Ward Scott file. Stay tuned. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company. 
Shoot GTR, on the spot dry cleaners, RR construction, and style cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pat him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right. Welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Ward Scott here with you. And Lewis Oil is bringing us Ward's weather report. And... What else have we got to talk about but the weather, in this case, the storm? And Ian uh, is uh, obviously intensifying. I'm looking at the latest coming in on this uh, thread that I'm looking at, intensifying into a a major Category 3 hurricane with the possibility that as it right down around Cuba, as Kennedy used to say, not Cuba, but Cuba. And, of course, as it rounds the corner there, and heads up by Tampa, probably a Category 4. Then the question becomes whether that kind of pauses there and hangs out because of some influencing winds pushing down from the north somewhat is the jet stream. And if it does, it builds strength and maybe then comes in as far south to our state as Tampa, Fort Myer area, and cuts across uh, that way. Or if those winds don't hold it there, it will build up its rapid intensification and move on beyond the Tampa-Fort Myers area as I'm looking at this and uh, uh, head up our way and possibly come in at Cedar Key. So um, this is a uh, an ominous picture I'm looking at. It's really, um, it's just it's, uh, the colors, if you... You like multicolored imagery. Boy, this has got it all. It's got the greens, the blues, the yellows, and the reds. And then at the core of it, I've never seen before. It's got just black. So it's got a sustained wind right now of 125 miles an hour. It's moving northward at 12 miles an hour, according to the National Hurricane Center. And it's located um, just uh, off the coast of Cuba, getting ready to push its way into the warm waters of the Gulf. Um, This is um, a pretty powerful system. I'm looking at the possibility of the eye. Um, At 8 p.m. Tuesday today, it will be uh, chugging towards Tampa. Uh, 8 a.m. Wednesday um, and into Thursday, then we're getting in. Probably we will 
feel if it comes our way right over us, it will be on Thursday, um, Cedar Key, probably 8 p.m., 8 a.m., and up our way, 8 p.m. on Thursday into the morning of Friday. And, what, and that's not nice of the storm to come in at night for us. It is really uh, not the best time to have to listen to the wind howling and listening to tree cr uh, limbs crashing and wondering when the power is going to come back on. So uh, Wednesday, it looks as if we will still, you know, I'm looking at the schools and whether the schools are shutting down. And I don't have any indication right now that Alachua County schools have, although I think Marion County schools have. So uh, Wednesday might be business as usual here. That is tomorrow. Um, we were going to have Ted Yoho on tomorrow, uh, but he is at right now in Vietnam and it is Wednesday in Vietnam right now. And he'll be in route flying after tomorrow. So we're going to try to have him on Friday, uh, but he's there a day ahead of us. So um, that's where we are. So the, the, the storm is going to obviously turn north, northwestward, uh, and then maybe a little bit more once it comes off coast of Cuba. Uh, a little, you know, then does it come across uh, at sort of Orlando and go out, or does it come up and come out and uh, head straight up the middle? to the west of Jacksonville. Well, 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 it's been um, something that um, you need to probably plan for the worst and hope for the best, as they say, and uh, make sure you've got your gas and your water if you don't have generators. That is the weather report for uh, today, and it's a obviously, quote unquote, literally a moving target as we speak. Uh, Thanks to Lewis All for bringing us the opportunity to say all that. Just talking with uh, Phil Kirpin, who is the president of the American Commitment. You can take a look at the American Commitment. It's a think tank, conservative think tank. Um, yeah, and uh, it's uh, AmericanCommitment.org, examines a lot of issues and looks at them from uh, the, the dollars and cents point of view. That's what I like about it. It's not about an agenda, not about tugging at your heartstrings. You know, who's going to pay for it? How's it going to be paid for? Are you getting your money's worth? That's basically how the American commitment works. And of course, there's no end of situations to be examined because there's so much waste in D.C. Uh, we were talking about the other day among some of my friends at lunch how Listen, this Trump is the only one who's been a businessman, really, that I can think of for quite a while to be a president. Most of these guys come out of the political ranks. They come out of Senate, or they come out of the House, or they come out of some other form of political profession. Um, and this is why you don't see many business people run for public office. Um, business people are really scared to advertise the Ward Scott Fox because, you know, they want to make money. They, pro they privately, you know, go get them. Go get them, boy. We need you. But publicly, they don't want to claim it because uh, they're intimidated by the fact that uh, the left is so vicious. And 
even though the left doesn't have anything at stake financially, so you can't pay them back, so to speak. If they attack your business because you're uh, a Republican businessman or woman, uh, you can't attack their business because they don't have one. And and so it's, and it's an uneven playing field that way. I want to applaud people, for, of course, uh, like uh, Randy Elrad and John Pastore on uh, crime prevention, some of my other hosts here uh, on the spot. These people are, they, they understand uh, Melden Law. Jeffrey Melden is a big community participant and supports a lot of causes. And, you know, some on the left and some on the right. That's really what we need. We need people who support public forums. And this is one. Here we are. And and that's uh, that's the, the way you can cover your bases is, you know, to support them all. It, you know, in California, well, we were talking about the government with uh, with um, Phil a minute ago and how crazy some of these things are that the imperial King Joe Biden is doing. But, you know, we got another imperial state within the United States. And, of course, we know it's California. And, you know, they just decree out there some of the craziest things. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they have an Air Resources Board uh, that has moved just this week uh, to ban. Are you ready for this? Ban gas, space and water heaters uh, by 2030. And by 2030, has decreed that all big rig trucks must go electric. You know, I got to, I got to, I got to ask, you know, what is going on out there? Uh, cities like San Francisco, Orlando, have, I mean, or, or Oakland have already passed electric only building mandates. So the air, that air board, the air resources board um, is forcing everyone uh, to pro, you know, get rid of gas furnaces by the end of the decade, uh, to get rid of gas trucks. Um, and meanwhile, the electric rates in the state, just like they are here in Gainesville, are surging. Um, there's a shortage of baseload power in California. Uh, the grid is all shaky uh, because they've got so much of it on the sun. And, um, you know, it's just it's just all being decreed that there should be retrofits. That's really you see what's going on here in Gainesville with the mandates, the landlord rental mandates. This is what is actually behind that, in my humble opinion. If you pass a, 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 a law, which they've done in Gainesville and the county now, as I understand it, that uh, you need a permit to have somebody else live in the building you own. Well, we got you. As a government, we got you. Because you can't get the permit if we also decree that, by the way, uh, get rid of the toilet that doesn't, that wastes water. At your expense, by the way. Or uh, get rid of this or get rid of that. And don't use this and don't use that at your expense right away. There's no end to what government and then decree. So if we might even decree as they don't have done in California, that you can't run large appliances in peak hours. When there's electrical demand, you can't even charge the electric cars 
during peak hours in California, during peak hours, after we decreed that you have electric cars. This is, you got to think this thing through. And yet, this is another imperial government. This is another imperial government. AP has analyzed this. Wall Street Journal analyzed it. A lot of people are looking at this doggone goofy state. Uh, they have also decreed the Air Resources Board. They're going to ban the sale of diesel and gas trucks completely by 2040 if they get their way. And they're going to decree that Amazon, UPS, will have to have, just in a few years now, an all-electric fleet. Now, where do they think the electricity is going to come from? I guess they think it's going to come from solar, wind, what they call green energy. But yet we already have evidence that it can't provide it. So how do we do it? We do it with rolling blackouts. Some of the data that I've learned, long-haul diesel trucks can go about a 1,000 miles without stopping at the truck stop for gas, and it takes them about 10 to 15 minutes to fill up. If they have to go with electric trucks, the fastest available chargers are going to take three to four hours. Now, guess who is going to pay for that? So when you add all these things up, that so-called climate change and the fossil fuel uh, negativities and all these things, you can only uh, you can only conclude unless you can show me another conclusion, and I'll really welcome it. That the United States of America led the world in its stand in in in, st in standard of living, the, in the rising standard of living for its citizens. The United States of America led the world in the 19, in the 20th century. Led the world. In the 21st century, the United States is going to lead the world down. While the rest of the world is going to be rising. Do you understand what we're saying? In the 20th century, we were rising. The rest of the world was dormant. We were increasing the standard of living for our people. The 21st century comes, and we've got this climate change. Fossil fuel is bad, and fossil fuel is what brought us this better standard of living. So we're going to lead the world down. Meanwhile, China is chugging more coal-fired plants than ever before. The other countries are doing their pioneering in the Southern Hemisphere, i.e. Brazil and places like this. And they're going to be doing their increasing standard of living. They'll be killing all their Indians and cutting down their trees and all that, which we did in uh, the 19th century. And that all prepared for the fossil fuel in the 20th century. It's, it's really kind of easy to graph it. <clears throat> you can see it. <clears throat> now, the charging stations, and I've been watching them even now as people pull up to charge in preparation for this storm, uh, they're going to be, if this comes true in California, 
a huge, huge power draw. Uh, and here are some comparative data that may help you put it in perspective. Uh, Levi Stadium in Santa Clara on a typical game day uses around 300 to 350 kilowatts of power. A charging station needed for a big semi is going to be 30 times larger. Okay. Have you got it? Have you got it? But that doesn't affect the commitment of these progressives in Sacramento, the state capital of California. It doesn't deter their commitment, evidently, whatsoever. It is, it is, um, I even got some stuff over in a midnight auto yard. Hang on a minute, that I have not used. that uh, addresses this that I've been uh, saving back. And it is uh, all about the, 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 the heavy influence, increasing influence of, uh, of coal in China, which China could, you know, China just bought a, uh, a, a big hunk of land right next to one of our military bases out west. Uh, you know, these things don't make the news, I guess, but uh, um, that's the way, that's the way uh, it's, it's, it's working right now. And <clears throat> there doesn't seem to be anybody to rein in this hysteria that um, fossil fuels bad. Meanwhile, we have really cleaned up our, our, uh, you know, you don't see smog hanging out over L.A. anymore. We've done a lot of stuff to affect positively in a positive way emissions. Um, but this kind of knee jerk reaction where you have this abrupt kind of change is uh, is uh, what we're going to have to face. Evidently. Last comment I want to make about is um, uh, big tech and its censorship. You know, we're subject to. Big tech censorship. Right now, we're not over on um, YouTube because they took us off because they went back two years or at least a year way back and found some comments that uh, questioned um, the, 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 uh, the uh, acceptable election narrative and took, you know, and they, I, I don't, it's, it's, it's crazy. They even went back to a show. That while I was still on the radio, where we were podcasting from the student radio studio, we took one of those down. It's a large social media platforms. The issue is whether they're blocking speech based upon their self-defined viewpoint. And Phil was talking about Twitter a minute ago. You know, Trump still kicked off of Twitter. So the issue is, is it an exercise of editorial judgment, which they claim they have, and it's protected by the First Amendment. Uh, so therefore, nobody can tell them they can't censor. Um, or is it something else? Is it uh, 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 arbitrary, capricious kind of definition of decency, which they use? Um, they consider they use this. Uh, um, 
these this kind of word, oh, it's obscene, it's uh, violent, it's harassing, or the phrase it seems so much falls under, otherwise objectionable. So there's no recourse, really. You could sue the company, possibly, if legislation is developed to allow that. But what would you get? Uh, all you would get would be maybe reinstated, and it could take a, a long time. So um, it's really the balls in the social media companies' courts. There's a Texas law that is seek to regulate and seeking to regulate them under business conduct, not speech, uh, which holds that the government can impose non-discrimination obligations on businesses that affect the public interest. An, an example they brought up, and I thought this was interesting, was Western Union, which was the largest telegraph company at the time. It refused to carry messages from journalists who competed with its ally, the Associated Press, and uh, they tried to prohibit. Um, Congress intervened and tried to prohibit telegraph companies from discriminating against dispatches that didn't come from them or dispatches that they didn't approve of that competed with them. Well, the uh, social media companies, basically to put it in a nutshell, for those of you who've been asking me how this works, they want to be able to censor speech uh, they don't like without bearing any legal risks and responsibilities. And uh, right now the courts are letting them do it. So it, uh, it remains to be seen whether anybody will rein them in. They're really operating in a territory that uh, has just really been around for a few years when you think about it. Well, we appreciate uh, we're at 957. We're going to keep an eye on the weather. We're assuming we'll be back tomorrow. But that'll be subject to uh, whether we have power. And uh, yeah, we thought of using Rumble. Uh, thank you, Gene. We've thought about using Rumble. Um, and there's some data there that, uh, um, you know, um, we're investigating. Thanks for the tip. Yes, ma'am. Uh, or sir, I can't tell. Yeah, we've been thinking about doing that. So, but the issue remains. Uh, the uh, issue of whether or not the government can rein in these social platform countries. Well, we'll check in with you tomorrow, and we're assuming that uh, uh, we'll still be high and dry here in our part of the state, and we'll still have power, but uh, it's subject to change. Warthog Command Center out.